0: Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews.
1: Hello, I'm Steve Randall and this is the first of two episodes bringing you our recent Biodiversity in the Built Environment event. This is Constructive Voices. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Biodiversity in the Built Environment, a special event from Constructive Voices, the first of several special events that we will be hosting this year and this event the highlight of our biodiversity month. So thanks for joining us and a big thank you uh, to all of you who are on our panel, but also the many people who are joining us as part of the audience as well. Please can I ask you to remain on mute unless you're asked to speak. In a moment, we'll meet our amazing panel of experts. But first, I'm going to bring in a voice that uh, if you're a regular listener to the Constructive Voices podcast, then uh, you'll know his voice. Or, of course, uh, if you're uh, based in Ireland or have ever watched uh, Ireland's uh, biggest shows on construction, uh, Pete the Builder, Peter Finn, TV Builder, part of Constructive Voices, my co-host on the podcast. And uh, Pete, good to see you.
2: Hey, Steve, how's it going? Um, thank you very much for a very uh, colorful introduction there. I <laughs> really appreciate it. Um, just a very quick thing, guys. I just want to welcome everybody to our roundtable and uh, you know, just let you all know that we're honored and we're proud to, to have our platform being used for such uh, an important meeting and um, absolutely keep an eye out on more events that we're going to have throughout the year. So that's me. Very welcome to everybody, and I'm really looking forward to, to hearing it.
1: Excellent. Good to
2: see you, Pete, as always.
1: uh, Lots of people joining, which is fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for being part of this special event. Now, Claire Wansbury is uh, the expert on this. I'm here to keep everything flowing and uh, to move things along and and make sure that we uh, keep as much to time as we possibly can. But uh, Claire is the absolute expert on what we're talking about this afternoon, biodiversity. Claire, uh, welcome. And perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience, please.
3: Thank you. Hi, yes, I'm Claire Wandsbury. I'm Atkins Fellow and Technical Director at Atkins, which is a large engineering and environmental consultancy part of the SNC-Lavalin Global Group. And thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you to Constructive Voices for dedicating this time to biodiversity. So Steve, shall I explain where we're, what we're gonna do today and set the scene a bit? Please do. Cool. So during our session today, once I've set the scene, I'll be introducing Roberta Boscolo, who'll be talking about her work at the World Meteorological Office. And after that, I'll be asking each of our other panellists to introduce themselves, say a bit about what they do. And then we'll go into the panel discussion. We'll make sure at the end that there's plenty of time for listeners to feed in their own questions, so it won't just be us talking to each other with everyone else listening. But what is this session all about and why now? Essentially, we're living in a time of intertwined global emergencies of climate change and biodiversity loss. We need to resolve both for the sake of our natural world and ourselves. There's rightly a lot of publicity about the global targets, agendas and action on climate change but far less talk about biodiversity. Yet nature is our greatest ally in the fight against climate change, and it supports our individual health and well-being, and also supports so many of aspects of our economy. In December of last year, sorry, just a moment. In December of last year, the United Nations brought governments together in Montreal, For COP15, the 15th Conference of the Parties of the Convention on Biological Diversity. This convention was created in Rio in 1992, and there have been goals and targets set at various intervals since then. The task in Montreal was to set a set of goals that are going to turn the corner, take us from a time of nature loss to nature recovery, setting a vision for a nature-positive future. The meetings in Montreal were actually the final step of nearly two years of negotiation, but they did have an outcome, which was the Global Biodiversity Framework. The framework contains four long-term goals, where we need to be by 2050, and 23 targets, where we need to be by 2030 to have changed course and be heading towards those long-term goals. So this global biodiversity framework, is it as ambitious as some campaigners hoped? No, but it is ambitious. Is it guaranteed to work? No, if you look back, so many of the goals that we've set ourselves for each decade under this convention have just been missed. So it's a big ask. And it's not perfect. There are some bits that maybe could be clearer, some bits that aren't mandatory that some people would have liked to make mandatory. But it sets us a challenge which actually is achievable. It also captures the sense of urgency. We need to understand, we need to commit, and we need to act. One thing at COP15 in Montreal that was new and quite different from some of the climate conferences, is that the business world was really visible there. Not nudging governments and quietly calling on them to do less and don't sign us up. Saying to governments, do more. Saying we want mandatory targets to create a level playing field. We want action. Business wants action on nature. Because we can see inaction putting our businesses at risk. Essentially drumming home the message that looking after nature is sound business sense. So that, in a nutshell, is why we're here, to help us all learn more as we recognise and respond to that call for action. To be part of that change of direction towards nature recovery. So I hope that's given you a flavour for while we why we're here today, and I'm going to now invite Rober- Roberta to introduce herself and say a little bit about where she works, and then I'll ask a few questions of her, and then we'll introduce the rest of the panel. So, thank Roberta, you. good afternoon.
4: Good afternoon. Thank you, Claire, and thank you for inviting me to this uh, round table and uh, to share our experience with such a distinguished participant so i'm roberta boscolo and i am a science lead of uh, uh, for climate and energy at the world meteorological organization so the world meteorological organization is a, a specialized agency for, of the united nations and is also the authoritative voice for weather water and climate. The headquarter is in Geneva, Switzerland, and this is where I am now and I've been here since 2009. So, especially my work here, uh, focuses on how to harness the power of the climate data and the information that we generate in support of decision-making of key sectors. And for me is actually, uh, my focus is on the energy sector. So about uh, 10 years ago, uh, WMORS had uh, um, an initiative called the Global Framework for Climate Services, and to make sure that uh, the information uh, that we generate as, uh, as an agency uh, is used for climate adaptation, mitigation, and the public and the private sector. We realized uh, back 10 years ago, 10 years ago, that um, there is a disconnection between the community of the data and information providers like us. Uh, and those who actually uh, should access uh, this information uh, and should use it to develop their climate resilience strategy or optimizing the carbonization strategies. So my work is uh, uh, to connect uh, with all these stakeholders to make sure that the climate services cycle Um, is not broken, and uh, we keep providing better services and better value uh, to the society. Finally, I just want to say that our vision in in the World Meteorological Organization is a global, and uh, one of my focus is also to create capacity uh, in those countries, especially the developing countries, that don't have the capacity of the developed countries to serve some key sectors. And uh, I help them to access and use the climate data and develop information, which is tailored uh, for the national needs.
3: Thank you, Roberta. That was a great introduction. Um, Got a few questions to explore. The first one is actually about Thinking of COP15 on biodiversity, that really did have a hugely increased global profile. But action on biodiversity loss is still at a much earlier stage than action on climate change. We know we need to do more on climate, but do you think there are lessons from the efforts on climate change that can be shared with those who are striving to get momentum and awareness around biodiversity loss?
4: Yes, uh, so actually, um, I think there are uh, key lessons to learn. But just let me say that we can also argue that uh, the negotiation of uh, the climate change are also not progressing as fast, at least as fast as the scientists recommend in order to avoid the most devastating consequences of, uh, of climate change. Um, but yes, I agree that, you know, this COP, especially uh, the one in uh, COP 15 on biodiversity loss in, in December generated a, a significant increase of global awareness and also attention to the issues of uh, biodiversity uh, loss. Um, and as you pointed out, a uh, significant action, uh, to address these issues uh, is still on the early stage compared to, I think, to the climate change. But there are certainly, as I said, lessons um, from, uh, that we can learn from uh, the, what is happening in the climate change uh, sphere. And one important lesson is uh, the need for a strong, a uh, consistent messaging uh, about the urgency of the issue um, and the potential consequences also of inaction. Uh, this message uh, these messages, can be used to engage with the public and the uh, political, uh, and to build a political support for the action. And also, um, I attended several COPs uh, of climate change in the last few years, and my take is that uh, uh, in these gatherings, negotiation among the parties or the countries um, are, not, are just one part of of uh, of the whole event. And uh, while these governments uh, struggle uh, to to reach sometimes uh, a meaningful and bold uh, accord, uh, the other actors like businesses, civil society, academy and uh, NGO are pushing for great transformation. So mm-hmm. another important lesson, as you said before, is the need to build a coalition of stakeholders for different sectors and disciplines to work together towards a common goal. Uh, This uh, includes, as I said, civil society organization, the private sector, the scientific community. And it's uh, also important to acknowledge that uh, uh, addressing biodiversity loss will require a wide range of solutions as well. And the solution are also in the sphere of policy, legislative measures, economic incentives and community-based approaches. And uh, finally, I think uh, monitoring and reporting. On the progress in addressing biodiversity loss, also is crucial for measuring progress, identify the areas where additional action is needed, and for holding governments um, accountable uh, and other actors uh, uh, accountable. Um, So uh, it it is true that both COPs. Uh, are not, the changes are not happening as fast uh, as I said, as the fastest, uh, the the scientists are recommended, Um, but uh, I think uh, uh, we can learn from each other and uh, to get better, you know, uh, while we we go forward to this uh, 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 multi-diplomatic, this diplomatic world. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
3: What are your thoughts um, in terms of the impacts on the environment and how we deal with them about the interaction between climate change and loss of biodiversity from your own work?
4: Yes, so the the interaction... Uh, between uh, climate change and loss of uh, biodiversity is a complex and interrelated issue uh, with significant impacts also on the planet and also in the human society. Um, Climate change can have a direct impact on the biodiversity, for example, by altering uh, the range of distribution of species, uh, their migration patterns, their reproductive success and also uh, pushing for changes in the timing of the life cycle of events such flowering uh, and migration. So climate change can also cause shifts in ecosystems, altering the balances of the species and leading to changes in the composition and the structure of uh, uh, ecosystems. And on the other hand, loss of biodiversity can exacerbate also climate change. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, by reducing the capacity uh, of the ecosystem to sequester the the carbon and regulate local and regional climates. Um, For example, deforestation and other forms of land use are significant sources of greenhouse gases emissions. And um, the loss of carbon rich petlands and forest uh, and grassland can lead to substantial emissions of uh, CO2 and other uh, greenhouse gases. So what I say is that the relationship actually between climate change and biodiversity uh, loss is uh, is multidirectional
3: mm-hmm.
4: and uh, have impacts uh, which are not just limited to the natural world uh, but have also important implication on the human society as well and addressing both of these uh, global challenges, we require an integrated uh, collaborative effort uh, all, from all sectors of society. And as I said before, we need to have a vision, which includes also governments, civil society, organizations, private sectors, and also individuals as well.
3: Thank you. And with your own work, you're obviously very deeply involved in the scientific study with climate. And in the same way that we're recognizing the climate change and biodiversity losses, emergencies are sort of intertwined and we need to deal with them both. Um, As well as finding solutions, there's also scientific research to understand the challenges and record change. Um, How do you see the scientific studies of nature helping our understanding of climate change and potentially vice versa as well?
4: Sure. I think, you know, this is a very interesting question. And it goes back to actually what I said before, because I think the scientific studies of nature, uh, of nature, uh, you know, plays a very crucial role in understanding uh, climate change and uh, its impact on the, on the, on the natural worlds. Uh, so research in the biodiversity ecosystems and their functioning uh, help us to better understand uh, the interaction between species, ecosystem, the physical and the chemical processes that regulates the earth climate. And this research provides important information about the ways in which climate change is affecting the natural world and the way in which changes in biodiversity and ecosystem can impact also the earth climate system. I was recently reading an article uh, regarding the Amazon forest degradation and the fact that such uh, forest destruction can push this ecosystem to a tipping point and to a critical transition uh, to a dry state and uh, such new states have a global impact, Mm -hmm. uh, not just uh, in the region of the Amazon. And uh, because there are teleconnection with uh, this kind of tipping point area with others, uh tipping points in other part of the worlds uh and uh, which are elements uh, critical elements of the earth system and uh, they found that the um amazon rainforest area is connected for example to the tibetan uh, plateau Uh, which is known as the third pole and is providing water to all the region and uh, uh, of the Asia, many countries in Asia and also the West Antarctic area. This is how the system is really interconnected and uh, and we need to um, be careful to to, to look at it in a very uh, um, comprehensive way. So similarly, a research in climate change can inform our understanding of the biodiversity loss, for example, the impacts of climate change on species distribution, mitigation patterns, uh, reproductive success, uh, can help us to better understand uh, ways in which climate change is affecting biodiversity and ecosystem, and also can inform us um on uh, on on how better we can develop uh, targeted conservation strategies and prioritize areas for conservation actions thank you
3: thank you Roberta. that's been really insightful that's been a great start to the afternoon Roberta will be staying for the panel session but i'm going to now invite each of the other the panel members to have five minutes to introduce themselves, say a little bit about their own work, and maybe if they've got any sort of high-level take on what they were thinking in the run-up to the COP15 meeting last December, and their feelings on the framework that resulted from it. And I'm going to turn first to Jane Manley, who's the CEO of the Earth Trust. And I won't tell you what the Earth Trust is because I know she's about to tell us all about it.
0: Hi, and thank you. I mean, it's great to be part of this panel today. Really delighted and actually honoured to be in such esteemed conversation as we're having today, but highly relevant. Um, I've got a series of slides to help uh, you understand a little bit more about the Earth Trust. Um, I have to say that uh, the global biodiversity framework is hugely important to the work of the Earth Trust, but we are quite a long way from global discussions in terms of what we do. Although what we do is is obviously highly steered by the global conversations that are happening. So thank you. I'm just gonna say thank you as we move from slide to slide. So I'm chief executive of the Earth Trust and the Earth Trust is a local organization, um, a UK-based charity that champions access to green space. And the reason why we champion access to green space is for the benefit that that access provides to people's health and well-being, to their decision-making around biodiversity and their decision-making around climate. Thank you, next slide. Um, So this is our strategy, it is uh, we need a society where everybody has access to green space and can benefit from green space and it's important that that access is um, as easy as possible but also that through that access, they gain, people gain a more deeper and meaningful connection with the environment because, next slide please, um, it is people that are at the heart of all decision-making in whatever, wherever you are across the globe. It's people whose action and whose voices will determine whether or not we succeed. Um, The targets themselves, a little bit of reflection for me first, before I get on to some really good projects that we have done in the past. Um, I just want to reflect on the global biodiversity framework. Um, I think going into the COP, I didn't have um, enormous hope for what was likely to come out. But actually, for Earth Trust um, and our work, it is hugely important. So I just want to draw... um, The attention of the panel to uh, four key agreements that were reached. Firstly, 30 by 30, I think we will hear a lot more about that in um, in the next conversation. There are targets around reducing pollution, there are targets around corporate reporting and a significant expectation that there will be a greater increase in financial contribution towards biodiversity. Um I think what's really missing in terms of the conversation is putting people at the heart of decision making and putting people at the heart of access to biodiversity, because as I said, for the Earth Trust, it's people and their connection with the natural world that's going to make a big difference. So that translation of global targets into local action and and providing those those policy levers and those opportunities and the frameworks and the funding to enable people to make the right decisions is, is crucially important and I've got a, a few examples next slide please I've got a few examples of where we've made um, a big difference here in the uk so firstly this is a discussion about construction and during covid we but uh, we built a new building designed and constructed a new building and this building was called is called earth lab it's a connection with the natural world for many young people um, it's it's built giving a sense of place and location in an engaging um, as an engaging manner as possible, but it also stretches construction materials, it stretches supply chains, it it stretches us and our thinking about how to build constructively um, construction in future. So how to build sustainably in future. Next slide, please. Um, Secondly I just want to give another example. This is River of Life. So this is a big construction project still within the working landscape that we care for in South Oxfordshire and it is the largest wetland creation project on the banks of the River Thames. Hugely important All our projects contribute to biodiversity targets, but also contribute to to climate targets as well as to people's health and well-being. Next slide, please. And finally, I just want to draw your attention to um, one of the key strands of um, the COP targets, which is around investing more in the future. And in 2013, we set about becoming part of a different partnership. Um, whereby the predecessor to biodiversity net gain was developed. It was called Biodiversity Offsetting and funding from a development actually was directed at improving chalk grassland, chalk downland here in South Oxfordshire. So several years on, we have now proved that funding that comes from a different partnership, from from, um, a developer, can actually contribute significantly to biodiversity delivery on the ground. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Jane. That's just been a really inspiring snapshot of examples. That that was great. Um, I'm next going to hand over to Chris Gerard from Anglian Water. invite you to introduce yourselves and say a bit about what you do and your thoughts on biodiversity.
2: Thank you very much uh, Claire, it's great to be here today and I look forward to the discussion that we have um, uh, over the uh, next hour or so. Uh, So I'm Chris Gerald, I'm the Catchment and Biodiversity Manager at Anglian Water. Anglian Water is one of the UK water companies, we cover about a quarter of England. um, In a part of the country which is particularly Vulnerable from a biodiversity perspective, um, uh, we cover the the eastern side of the country, north of of, of London. We're um, a low lying part of England. We have only two thirds of the average rainfall in the UK, and we have a soft, low lying coastline. And we have about half of England's most valuable farmland in our region as well. All of that means that historically the biodiversity in our region has been um, significantly impacted. A lot of conversion to agriculture, a lot of loss um, due to the growth of towns and cities and roads and rail across our region as well. And it's very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and uh, continued growth. So we have a lot of challenges as a business um, to carry out our water and water recycling services for our 6 million customers, but do that in a way that um, supports and enhances um, biodiversity and indeed the communities uh, that that we serve. Um, I guess that when we approached COP15, I was interested and hopeful that it would get a higher profile than previous biodiversity COPs have had. And as you said, Claire, I think that that did prove to be the case. And part of that was perhaps because we were emerging from the pandemic and certainly in England, the, the pandemic um, lit um, a bit of a light under people's interest in their local biodiversity. Where can they go and get their exercise? Where can they see wildlife? Where can they get some uh, green space? So I was hopeful that we would have some um, uh, a good outcome from COP15 and I, and I think that's what we got on the whole. Um, the goals and targets that were set um, are pretty comprehensive and maybe lacking in detail in, in some parts. Um, uh, but nevertheless cover the sort of key areas such as um, protecting species and restoring uh, habitats, uh, ensuring the benefits that that nature gives to humans continue uh, to to flow, addressing things like invasive species and pollution, um, and supporting communities and people around the world um, to get an equitable um, share of uh, uh, that biodiversity value. So I was quite happy with um, on the whole, how how COP15 ended, but as you said, Claire, the targets have been set and missed in the past, and so I'm really particularly interested in, so from, from a UK perspective, what we do here to bring those targets into concrete plans of action so that we can work together to actually um, uh, achieve those targets. There, I'm also somewhat optimistic, I have to say, um, because we have in the past had Um, a a new environment act, we had a new agriculture act uh, and that is hopefully laying a bit of a foundation for some uh, some of the things that we need to see happen for nature's recovery. So if we have a a, a well-planned and well-resourced agri-environment program that farmers can buy into, um, uh, if we have biodiversity net gain that works, that allows uh, developers to make meaningful contribution to nature recovery and and allow for growth, then hopefully we'll be able to make much more progress on these targets than we have uh, on, on previous ones. I guess to finish off from Angling Water's perspective, we're obviously a construction company as well. We build pipelines, we build water treatment works and so on. And we do that largely to meet environmental targets. So if we have to Um, improve the quality of water we're putting into a river, we often find ourselves traditionally doing something that impacts the environment in another way. If we pour a lot of concrete, if we use a lot of chemical, if we use a lot of energy to achieve a water quality objective, we're just driving climate change in the wrong direction as well. So my wish in this country and around the world would be that we really recognise this is a genuine Uh, nature and climate crisis and that government gets behind mechanisms to allow the uh, different parts of the economy to sort of zoom out from the problem right in front of their noses and really strongly collaborate so we can partner up, we can co-fund, we can solve problems together and I believe if we do it in that way then we'll be able to make much more rapid progress on nature recovery but also mitigating climate change as well. Thanks Claire. Thank
3: you, Chris. That was great. One of the things we've touched on a couple of times spoken is the importance of nature to people's health and wellbeing. And our next panel member is somebody this is particularly relevant to, um, John Vesey from West Midlands 5G in the health and care sector. So John, I'll in- ask you to introduce yourself and say a bit about your own work and your thoughts
5: yeah thank you Claire. um like others uh, grateful to be on uh, on this panel and and also to um to join the conversation later and to keep learning uh, i think that's uh key for me i think uh, you know chris just touched on it um the ability to take a step back from the immediate problems is is really what um our organisation is trying to offer um particularly in, in my area around health and care how do we support organisations to Uh, do like Roberta was saying, and look at the systems that are inherent Mm. um, in the challenges facing these areas, whether that's in uh, construction and um, biodiversity, whether that's in how nature benefits people's health and well-being, or how it can also help uh, in recovery um, and prevention or or reduction of illness. Um, And so we work uh, predominantly in the UK, um, looking at how do we support people to understand their options, and give them the space to think through uh, the implications of those options. We're, we're there to sort of facilitate that space um, and look at that. And so, um, yeah, today is uh, another great example of that, where we get a chance to hear from a range of uh, a range of different people um, and and take in um, and take on that advice and, and and hear from it. And so, for me, that's that's kind of the lens I looked at COP 15 through. Is you know, what more can I learn? Um, How does this link to uh, the areas of interest that we have around One Health um, and that sort of overlap between how do you find that integrated approach uh, to balancing and optimising health of people, uh, animals and the environment? um, And what are the trade-offs that you get with that? And therefore, what are the chances that we can have those conversations uh, with a a range of people? Um, either in the UK or in the supply chains that we work with um, overseas, how are we influencing both in a negative and sometimes in a positive way, uh, those decisions and and how are we, um, again, uh, I think, as um, has been said by Jane, you know, how do we make sure that people are at the centre of that? How do we make sure that it's still people that have the choice, Um, but at least it's an informed choice? You know, they know what the consequences are of, Building in a particular way, you know, fighting for public transport in a particular way, looking at infrastructure um, and the landscape of infrastructure in relation to how they want to live in community, in society, and hopefully move away from, um, I guess, what seems to be being, being advertised, certainly in, in the UK as as the panacea of Uh, finding a way to be wealthy enough to exit from society seems to be uh, our goal and um, for some reason I'd I'd like to work on reversing that and actually being how do we contribute to to society how do we contribute to nature and and be part of it and and get all the benefits from being part of it rather than thinking it's something to uh, try and try and earn our way out of.
3: Thank you John. And our final panel member today is Margarita Skarku from 2150. Margarita, would you like to introduce yourself and say a few words?
6: Sure. Thanks, Claire. And yeah, echoing the, the other panelists, very humble to be part of this and um, to learn from, from everybody. So, so I probably come at this from a slightly different angle. I work at 2150, which is a venture capital fund, we're a climate tech fund so very much focusing on backing technologies and companies that have a positive impact on climate and biodiversity we see it as an extension of that and i can certainly expand on that in a moment but um also looking for a financial return so you know very much see biodiversity as an opportunity from a from a financial point of view but also for for climate uh from many different angles um I'm originally civil and environmental engineer, so this sort of intersection of the built environment and this topic is is very much uh, something I'm interested in. Spent a long time in finance and as part of that career uh, got to work on things like TCFD and saw the beginnings of TNFD uh, from inside a large bank and what does that mean and how do we start to even think about monitoring and reporting on nature. Um, And so that's that's also been a very interesting um, sort of... uh, narrative and, and evolution to to observe um i mean i guess i won't comment too much on cop 15 i think everything's already been said but the, the main point i would echo is that it's great that we have this commitment and now let's actually do something about it because i think on um on the climate cop you know we, we've seen that yes there was a big sort of patting on each other's back after paris and there has been some progress made but you know to talk about the, the UK, um, we're we're not on track whatsoever to hit those commitments. And again, you know, there's a lot of patting on our backs when we were the first country to legislate uh the the commitments, but actually unless you achieve that, it's it's completely pointless. And so I think that's the main thing, and you know, coming at it from a kind of venture capitalist perspective where we we do see the technologies that exist, we're, we're very close to what's what's actually possible right now. Um, there's a, there's a lot that's possible on on sort of climate more broadly, but specifically biodiversity. And so let's actually kind of focus on on implementing some of those solutions and and being quite ambitious so that we can avoid the sort of sixth extinction that we're we're on 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 the route to right now. Um, I think more broadly, and and it does sort of link to that a topic that I'm very interested in is, you know, how do you how do you come up with a with, with a really consistent and user friendly way to value some of these ecosystem services? Because at the at the end of the day, that that is often what it comes down to is actually being able to place a value, and particularly when you think about um you know Roberta touched on it, but you know a lot of the large rainforests, which obviously provide A lot of value that has a very direct impact on weather patterns and on climate change you know what what are the incentives if you're from a country whether that's brazil or indonesia or or the drc where there's a lot of social inequality there's a lot of poverty and you know you're being asked to preserve nature for the benefit of the the whole world but but in reality you know you could be using that land to gain a much much more direct and immediate sort of economic benefit so that's a topic that I'm very interested in. Um, I do. I'm doing quite a bit of work uh, with the UKRI on on this topic as well about how do you actually think about placing value on nature that that is translatable in a very direct fashion. Thank you, Margarita. I think that that point about
3: social justice between people between countries there's so much complexity to all of this. Yeah, it's really and I, important.
6: And I think that was something that um I mean, I, I wasn't sort of obviously in, involved in negotiations, but I think that was a topic that came up even in the final moments of the of the COP15 mm-hmm. agreement where you had, you know, certain countries from from Africa sort of saying this is great, but we actually need more funds to preserve and conserve you know our natural habitats and where's that going to come from and the the, to my understanding there wasn't really a response and so I really think that's that's sort of fundamental um because this is a global issue I think every every country kind of has the responsibility for for its own land but you know, we do also need to think about it from a global perspective.
4: Constructive Voices,
1: the podcast for the construction people. Check out the next episode for our roundtable discussion.